0: the truth. Hello, welcome to Factually, I'm Adam Conover, and look, given the absolute devastation caused by coronavirus, as I'm recording this, we've got 3 million cases and 130,000 people dead in the United States alone. Uh, You know, we don't talk about the virus in very positive terms, right? We're like, the fucking coronavirus, when's it going to end? I hate this thing. But crucially, and this is really interesting, we also, when we talk about it, we give it intent. Intent. Right? Like news reports describe it as insidious, as though it's an evil genius which has probed human society and biology to discover our weakest points and plot some kind of invasion. We talk about the virus as moving undetected in our bloodstream before we show symptoms like it's a cat burglar. Humans can't help but personify this thing. I mean, that's what we do. And since the novel coronavirus is doing such a good job at ruining lives, so our thinking goes, well, it must know what it's doing. But of course, uh, with a moment's thought, we know that's not the case. Coronavirus isn't smart in any conventional human sense. In fact, it's dumb, 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 dumb. And like all viruses, it's extraordinarily simple. Viruses are made up of just bits of genetic material surrounded by protein and an outer membrane. That's it. They can't even reproduce on their own. Instead, here's how they work. They get into cells in whatever form of life they can, whether it's a plant, animal, funga, or bacteria. And when they're in that cell, they lose the protein coding and their genetic material plugs into the infected cell's replication machinery and manufactures more of itself. A virus isn't so much an evil genius as it is a biological computer glitch or a miniature chemistry set. And not only are they incredibly bare bones, they're also tiny. For instance, the hepatitis virus is about 40 times smaller than E. coli bacteria. That's because, unlike bacteria, they don't have the machinery of life that bacteria do. You know, bacteria are complex little life forms. They can communicate, they can live inside or outside of the body, and in fact, we need bacteria to do things like help us absorb food in our gut. Although they're single-celled, bacteria can make their own energy and sustain themselves. Viruses, not so much. And compared to the simplest single-cell organisms, viruses are incredibly basic. Again, just little bits of genetic material in a tiny protein sheath. In fact, they are so simple, there is some question among scientists as to whether they're even alive. After all, they can't even replicate without a host cell. So over the course of our knowledge about them, scientists have thought of them at some times as poisons, then at other times as life forms, and then sometimes as a kind of biological chemical. Viruses exist in a biological gray area, a part of life, but not quite alive. And There's an irony in that, right? How can these fun sized packages of genetic info have such huge outsized impacts? How can a squirmy bit of code and protein devastate the world this way? And how is it that a tiny bit of genetic information in a simple little sheath can have such different effects on different people? Well, here today to talk to us more about viruses and educate us on this topic, our guest is Sabra Klein. She's a professor at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health and is an expert on viruses and how men and women respond differently to them. Please welcome Sabra Klein. Sabra, thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So you're a microbiologist at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health, right? Did I get it right?
1: You got it correct. I am. (laughs) And um, you study
0: specifically. Uh, I, I want to talk about everything about viruses. I want to learn a lot about viruses and coronaviruses and COVID nineteen today. Okay. Um, but you, okay. one of the things you study specifically is sex differences in uh, uh, coronavirus, and, and I assume other viruses. How, oh, how does yeah. how does that make you think differently about uh, what we're all going through right now?
1: Absolutely. So you know, as you said, uh, I, I'm a microbiologist. So as a biologist, I think about some of the biological ways in which men and women differ in how well we can um, both recognize and respond to, and hopefully clear a viral infection. And I, I study this both in the context of infections, but also even vaccinations. So that's something else that that you know you and I could could discuss um, as well. Yeah. But you know. Generally speaking, um, women tend to mount more robust immune responses right away, right when we first recognize that something foreign has entered our body. Um, and in this case, if we're going to be talking about the um, the SARS coronavirus two or SARS CoV two as it's been abbreviated, um, this is this is a single stranded RNA virus. So all that means for your listeners is it's a piece of RNA. Um, And, and, you know, viruses like SARS-CoV-2, what they do, they travel light. And as a piece of RNA, in order to live and replicate, they have to take over our own cells and utilize our own cell machinery in order to replicate. And they do that quite well. And so right when they enter women tend to mount more robust responses. We recognize and respond to them with a greater inflammatory response, which can turn into greater, um, what we call adaptive immune responses, which are kind of the memory responses so that if we ever get exposed to things a second time, we, we you know, might be able to clear it even faster. But this often means that, that women tend to have um, less virus in them Uh, than our male Mm. counterparts. Um, And there are some early data that have come out of Wuhan, China. I think we're waiting to see if this is replicated through other studies. But there there was an interesting study um, that, to my knowledge, is still a preprint, but it was actually a nice study. It it will likely make it easily through peer review. And it showed that even within families, um, women uh, or females, I should say, this actually even included um, female children, tended to clear the virus faster they weren't shedding the virus in their in the nasal swab samples for as long as as the males in the family mm. and they did this with many families and why i think that's important is because it controls for things like exposure you know because if, if depending on the culture, depending on on the norms of that culture, you might have more men working outside of the home, or you might have situations that are are resulting in greater exposure that could explain why men have more virus or are shedding virus longer. Um, but when you're when you're in a family, um, you're kind of equalizing that exposure.
0: That's really fascinating from from a you know just from a research perspective. Uh, but what could that mean in terms of you know, how we might behave differently or like a therapy that we could come up with for the absolutely, disease.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. So, um, you know, so how I often think about this, again, from a biological perspective, if if women tend to mount greater immune responses to viruses, we may also mount greater um, immune responses to vaccination uh, as well. Mm. Because, you know, really all a vaccine is, is it's usually either, you um, a piece of the virus. So it's just a portion of the virus, or if it's a, if it's a live viral vaccine, then it's usually some attenuated form of the virus. Um, but, but regard or it's just killed virus. Um, when, the female immune system sees this, it it tends to mount a greater uh, and more robust response. And where I have historically studied this um, to the greatest extent is in the context of the, of the influenza vaccine. Mm -hmm. So the vaccine that, you know, we're all supposed to go and receive seasonally. I do my
0: best to get it every year. Okay,
1: that is good to hear. That is very good to hear. Um, I guess some good news is that SARS-CoV-2 does not seem to mutate as readily or as quickly um, as as influenza viruses. It also does not appear to reassort. So one of the things by reassort, what I mean is that one of the things that the flu virus can do is it can take a little bit of genetic material from one strain of flu and it can mix with genetic material from another strain and create a new strain. And that's why um, we need we new have, vaccines every exactly, year, right? Exactly. That's exactly. So, you know, I think many of us are, are hopeful that while we don't really know the duration of our immunity or how, how long that immunity lasts, we are hopeful that it will not require annual vaccinations, um, especially given that the, the SARS-CoV-2 does not appear to to mutate you know, the same way or at the same rate that we see with influenza viruses.
0: But you think that we might see that men and women respond differently to the vaccines yeah. once we have one?
1: Yeah. So, you know, much of my work has shown that that these vaccines, that, that and it's across diverse vaccine platforms, women tend to mount greater immune responses, and there is some evidence of greater efficacy of the vaccine. So what that means is that um, you know, hopefully when we all get vaccinated, um, our, our goal and as public health um, practitioners is that, you know, these vaccines are going to in, induce the type of immunity that prevents us from getting infected. Um, and and as you know, the flu vaccine, partly because of the mutations of the virus, it's not perfect. So, a lot of times you'll hear stories: "Hey, I got the vaccine, and then I got the flu." Mm-hmm. the vaccine doesn't work. And, you know, what data suggests is that even if it isn't 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 perfect and you do get the flu, presumably you get um, a, a much less severe form. You are yeah. significantly less likely to die than if you didn't get the vaccine. So I do think these become kind of, you know, important points to keep in mind, especially as, as you know, we're moving toward, Um, development, you know, we're in the midst of, you know, in many cases, phase two, and even the start of some phase three clinical trials for the COVID-19 vaccine. We don't yet, um, recommend dosaging or formulations based on, on whether you're a male or a female. You know, Mm. I think these are things that need to start getting considered. Um, it, it may become more important to maybe even consider about boosting for men, Um, You know, so these are things that I discuss in this type of context, but, you know, I think we're still trying to change policy. I think we've Mm -hmm. seen that happen um, with regard to age, you know, so we know that as we age and as we get older um, for vaccines, these are older adults are are individuals 65 years and older. We know that because of some of the um, immunological decline that can occur as we age that, that, you know, sometimes we do need a different dose for, for older adults.
0: And so, maybe we might start doing that for for men and yeah. women as well yeah. eventually.
1: yeah. well, let's
0: let's take it back to basics here because because okay. I, I was talking about this in the intro.. Uh, Viruses are one of the weirdest things in life, I think. <laughs> like, uh, are they because, living?
1: It's very philosophical.
0: Yeah. Are they li- I mean, because bacteria. <laughs> so, so I, I, take me to this level, right? Blow my mind like I'm in, you know, Virology 101, mm-hmm. right? And I'm thinking about this for the first time. Like, bacteria are alive. They're little creatures. Absolutely. Right?
1: Absolutely. But,
0: but viruses are just what they're just like little, they're just what little strings of, of code. Genetic that,
1: material of code. Yeah. Beautifully said. Yes. They can either be they can either be RNA or they can be DNA, um, and really what they end up doing is they have they have you know they've evolved um, ways to utilize. Um, often receptors that we have on, on the surface of our cells and our body, lots of different cells and which cells get infected often depends on which virus. But if we stick with our example of SARS-CoV-2, which again is, is an RNA virus, um, it's, it's going to primarily infect um, epithelial cells. So epithelial cells lining our, our respiratory tract, mm. going through our nose, down through our trachea, into our lungs. And um, it's, going to, it's going to get in there um, by a receptor, a receptor that you know, we have on our cell for other physiological functions. So, you know, viruses are, are experts at taking advantage of things that we can't get rid of because we need them for other purposes.
0: <laughs>
1: so, so you need the lungs, not, you, you know, need the
0: epithelial cells.
1: Right, and you need the receptors on a lot of these cells for again, for other basic physiological functions. And, and these viruses are very good at taking advantage of this and then using those receptors to kind of get inside of our cell. And once this, this bit of genetic code, as you put it, is in our cell, then it can start to utilize aspects of our cell, things that are inside of our cell, things that we use for our own cellular functioning, the virus can now use to... To make itself into um, into a virus particle that can then bud from a cell, and now you've got now it's living now it's it's a real it's a it's it's a living <laughs> virus particle, but part of what it's made of is from you, and now it can go and it can infect other cells and 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 it can continue to replicate, and that will continue. Um, but we have evolved to have this wonderful immune system that we have that, um, it is wonderful, but it often (laughs) takes a while, you know? So, so in order to, to genetically rearrange cells within our own body to really start to recognize and know, okay, I've got to create an army of cells that are are going to recognize SARS-CoV-2, you know, people don't want to hear this, but this can take weeks, yeah. Um, because you're talking about genetic rearrangement of uh, within our cells. This just takes time. Wow. Um, you know, and so we have some immune responses that can be immediate, like within hours of getting exposed. And then we have other responses that are going to take days and even weeks in order to mount um, to really get rid of the virus. And so you, know, this is when it kind of gets into the gray area of this is when people enter into the you know hospital this is when people can mm. enter in to the intensive care unit and how well we can mount that immune response you know becomes really important
0: got it because the the symptoms are those are immune responses right when you have yes. a fever or something yes. like that that's your body fighting back it's not caused directly by the virus and so if it takes your body a couple weeks to yes. recognize that the virus is spreading that's why you're asymptomatic but you're still full of virus you have a lot of yes. virus in you yes i see
1: Yeah. And, you know, I think an interesting point that you made is, you know, some of what, you know, what doesn't take weeks for us to develop is that inflammation that, and it does, that does contribute. As you said, that's exactly the cause for fever. That's our own immune response Mm -hmm. causing this. And, and some of the tissue damage that we're seeing in patients and, and some of the, um, the acute distress that's occurring in the lungs of patients with very severe um covid-19 which is you know what we call the disease that's caused by the infection with this virus
0: oh covid-19 is a disease and the name yes. you said earlier is the name of the Sar- virus
1: yes yes oh
0: yes. so what and what's that name again
1: so sars-cov-2 is the mm-hmm. rna virus that causes COVID nineteen. COVID nineteen being the disease. So when you get when you get diagnosed and you're put in the hospital if it's severe enough, you have COVID nineteen, but it's caused by this virus. Yeah.
0: Got it. Thank I never understood that. Thank you for that. Yeah.
1: And so it (laughs) turns out that that in, gosh, I mean, in almost 90% of countries around the world that are disaggregating their, da- their data, and in particular, their mortality data, um, and, and separating it for men and women, what we're finding is that men are, are typically at about a twofold increased risk of dying. Wow. From COVID nineteen, and that that's that's being shown around the world in age groups, um, most adult age groups. So where I've seen data broken down are starting at about age twenty on up to ninety plus years of age. So among really rather diverse ages, we're seeing that men are significantly more likely to be hospitalized to enter into intensive care units and to die from COVID-19. And so, you know, people like myself, we want to understand why. And there's the biology, you know, like we've been talking about, that immune response that might be contributing. But there are a lot of amazing investigators around the world also very interested in how our behaviors. I was going to ask, yeah. Yeah. Might be contributing to some of this. And so we often refer to um, some of the behaviors, maybe our lifestyle choices, um, things we might do that may put us at greater risk, either of exposure or of more severe outcome. We often refer to those as gender differences. When you introduced me, you know, you brought up the sex differences. That's the biological difference, you know, Mm -hmm. between a biological male and a biological female and gender is sort of, you know, it's more in reference to some of the social or cultural norms that might influence the behaviors, the occupations, the lifestyle choices that that we each might make. So, you know, as an example in, in diverse countries around the world, men are significantly more likely to smoke. Yeah. Um, men are significantly less likely to wash their hands. And data show that when you've been washing their hands, men are significantly less likely to use soap. So here's my public health announcement. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, there's anecdotal discussions. I've yet to see a, a study of this, but just anecdotal Um, write-ups about, you know, the demasculinization associated with wearing masks. Right. And so are men significantly less likely to wear masks? And again, I have not seen data yet, but I've seen in the popular press, um, you know, just some discussions of this. So, So these become some of the gender differences. I think other examples, and this could start to be a bridge between lifestyle and our biology, Um, some of the what we call in science and in medicine comorbidities so what comorbidities are these are other diseases that might make an individual um, or put an individual at greater risk of more severe outcome from COVID-19 so we've heard about things like having diabetes being obese having heart disease having hypertension are all examples of if you have some of those, um, those other diseases, you are at an increased risk of having more severe outcome. Basically what that means, you're more likely to die from COVID-19. Mm. Um, and there probably is some biology associated with this. There might have been some behaviors that led you down that path to having some of those other um, disease states. Um, but, but it turns out that, that across the board and across diverse countries, you know, you often find that these, um, these other diseases, these other comorbidities are, are, um, more frequent in men as compared with women.
0: Yeah. I mean, it just makes me think about, this is something I've talked about on my show before, and this is not your, uh, no, <laughs> it's it's a little fine. bit off from, from your area of expertise, but like, you know, we, there's so much talk, like even as a man, Like I grew up hearing about like, man, all of these sort of social impositions that are put on women are like bad for women's health, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, you know, body image and eating disorders and all those sorts of things. And it wasn't until years later, like in my 30s, until I realized that uh, the same thing happens to men, that like all of these Ideas that are spread about men. Just for instance, smoking. To take that example, smoking has been advertised to men so much more it's over so the last true. century. It's uh, so you know, the Marlboro true. Man and everything else. And guess what? That's deadly, and men smoke at higher rates, and we yes. die of it at a higher yes. rate. Yes. and like this is sexism, right? This is the. It the, is. The, this is this is this and and but you know you know that's so rarely Nobody in ever- men's conversations about ourselves.
1: And you know, and I do want you and your listeners to know that there are international groups who are focused on men's health, um, you know, specifically, um, because this is becoming a public health crisis. Um, and and I think there are um, ways to reach men to have these discussions. Um, because when you start to recognize you brought up advertising, you know, and how this can contribute to, these can contribute to some lifestyle choices that at different times, especially when we're younger, we may not recognize are going to be very detrimental, um, or create worse outcomes for us, uh, later in life. And so then people like myself, I mean, you know, yes, I, I, you know, I see myself as as a women's health expert, but I also see myself as a men's health expert because Mm -hmm. I really am trying to better understand why men and women and the complexities of why men and women may differ in outcomes of various diseases, Um, thinking not only about our biology, but how behavior um, could be impacting this as well, you know? And, um, you know, several, again, wonderful international investigators are also, you know, trying to really raise awareness that um, as we as we enter into a potential second wave of COVID-19, I think there's... Or we already more, are. Or we already are, especially here in the United States. Um, but it turns out that worldwide, 70% of, of our frontline healthcare workers are women. You know, mm. and so what that does to exposure, and do we start to really, you know, if we start to really, if, especially if the second wave is worse than the first wave here in the United States in particular, um, do we start to see increased rates of exposure, infection, and maybe worse outcomes in women? You know, as we as we move forward. So I do just want to put a plug in there that that occupation can become very important. Yeah. Um, in these discussions of, of differences between men and women. So getting back to
0: the virus itself, I yeah. know that uh, the SARS-CoV-2, did I get it right? Yes,
1: absolutely. Ah,
0: oh, good. That's a complex name to remember. Uh, it is a coronavirus. Coronavirus is actually a type yeah. of type of virus. Yeah. Um, what what is a coronavirus as distinct from uh, like I remember um uh, people saying, oh, you know, we knew a pandemic was going to come, but we thought it would be an influenza. We didn't realize it would we be did. a coronavirus. We and did. so what is a a coronavirus?
1: So typically, um, as we as we used to really think about coronaviruses, um, these are the viruses that typically cause the common cold. Um, mm. and, and I think as as you recognize, um, you rarely go to a doctor for the common cold. Um, usually, you can manage it through over-the-counter remedies or just kind of, you know, bearing through it. Um, we really haven't um, worried about um, these these coronaviruses. These are kind of referred to, if you will, as alpha coronaviruses. And other than these viruses, which we have obviously known about these coronaviruses for 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 a very long uh, period of time. Um, In 2003, we had the first emergence on record of um, what's referred to as a beta coronavirus. So this is a more pathogenic coronavirus. Um, And this particular coronavirus, which we refer to as SARS-CoV, it emerged um, in Hong Kong, and we were really able to get it for the most part, under control. Air travel and uh, did result in the spread of this virus to, to other countries, but we really were able to keep this under control. We quickly figured out that these, um, these coronaviruses, these beta coronaviruses, um, were being carried by bats. Um, And in the case of this 2003 outbreak that occurred, we identified the civet cat as an intermediate host in a way that the virus got from bats to people was by way of this cat that was at some of these um, live animal markets Hmm. um, in China. So we, we, we figured that one out then in around 2010, we had, and it's actually still ongoing, um, another outbreak of a pathogenic coronavirus. Um, this coronavirus, um, this is the MERS virus. So that's for uh, Middle East, or Middle Eastern um, Respiratory Syndrome virus. So um, this virus is, is found primarily in the Middle East. And again, we have, it, 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 it evolved in bats. Bats transmitted this to camels, and camels then expose um, humans. And so many more camels and many more interactions between camels and humans occurring in the Middle East, which is why we primarily find that there. So now we have this third highly pathogenic coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2 that you and I have been talking about, um, and, and exactly as you said, I think because these other pathogenic coronaviruses were just outbreaks, they, they've kind of been in limited regions of the world. We've been able to contain them. Yeah. Um, most people were not predicting um, that that the next 100 year pandemic would be from a coronavirus. We predicted that it would be from an influenza virus, which is, you know, earlier in our discussion, we discussed they mutate easier and more rapidly. They mm-hmm. can reassort and make brand new strains that our, our immune system has never seen before. We really, we really assumed that's what it would be. And and I think around the world, we've got some incredible surveillance um, and, 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 for flu. And now, you know, let me be clear, both here in the United States and elsewhere, you know, many of us who were a part of a lot of these larger surveillance efforts were in a position to quickly um, transition a lot of our research um, to SARS-CoV-2. And is there any, I'm just
0: curious, were we like, caught flat footed at all because we uh, thought it would be influenza the whole time. Like are were we sitting around with a lot of a lot of flu kits when we should have had yeah, coronavirus yeah. kits or not well, when we should have had, but. No, you know.
1: I, yes. I mean, in some respects, I mean, we have some, we have some really decent tests in place. Um, you know, debates about the quality of the tests and the kits for knowing if you have flu and knowing precisely which strain of flu you have. We, we don't have those debates because we really are we're set up with a very good international infrastructure to diagnose influenza and and you can know exactly which strain you were infected with and and we have wonderful monitoring in in place and um you know so so i you know so i think i think what's been tough is as a scientist um I think what's been most difficult is that the public is having to see sometimes in the early stages um, how imperfect mm-hmm. and and what the process of science really looks like, and things are often not immediate and they are often not without fault immediately. And you know, I realize that can be very frustrating and and stressful, especially when you're in the midst of a pandemic, but. But accuracy and science—I mean, this takes time. This really yeah. takes deep, deep knowledge of what it is that you're developing, what it is you're you're testing, how you're testing. Um, there's usually we usually get you know years to yeah. to really hone some of um, some of what we know, and and you know the people developing these kits, you know, they, they were doing this on, on the order of weeks, not years yeah, and having to do it very publicly. Yeah. You know, so where, where before you even had a moment to maybe, um, you know, validate or have other labs validate it's out there and everybody's trying to buy your kits and everybody, and, and, and then the public gets upset when, you know, they have to hear that everything maybe isn't, the same and every kit isn't as accurate as every other kit. And then we get into the debates about, should you be going and knowing whether you've been, you have the virus or whether you have those antibodies against the virus, yeah. and, you know, and, and these are the challenges. And um, I, you know, my hope is that it doesn't erode um, faith in science, but more just an appreciation that science is a process Mm-hmm. And it's usually a process that 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 does take time for us to do it in as accurate and thorough and and as and we replicate things to know that we can believe what we're seeing. And right now we're giving you guys everything hot off the press.
0: Yeah, just and not a situation that scientists are used to being in no. or that the public is used to no. being in, in as regards science. Like normally we don't give that much of a shit about (laughs) about (laughs) the cutting edge science, right? Where we'll, we'll wait five years for it to be solid.
1: Absolutely. And now in real time, you know you you're having us come on shows like this, you know to have <laughs> fabulous discussions, but a year from now, it's some of what I've said on here is wrong this is this is my my disclaimer yeah. you know that that we're still in the early stages, and things may shift and 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 we may find that the storyline is changing as we continue to understand more about the virus, more about how to measure the virus, more about our immune system, how to measure those immune responses, how long those immune responses last. Um, I I get asked that all the time. And and I think most of us, it's, it's a very unsatisfying thing to say, but we don't know. You know, we presume because it is a virus and it's it's in a family of viruses that 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 you know, virologists are familiar with that there will be long lived immunity, but that's yet to have been shown. And there are a lot of aspects of this particular pathogenic coronavirus that just doesn't seem to completely fit, even you know, with other pathogenic coronaviruses. So we're still learning with you, but yet. We also have to share some of our expertise in real time. I think it's important. I think that's yeah. that's our role that we ha- We should be doing that. And I I can't tell you as a scientist how um, just how both emotional as well as motivating it is to see the public interest in wanting to know so much about yeah. a virus and wanting to know so much about their immune system, how their immune system functions. I mean, this is exciting, you know? This is what, <laughs> you know? I mean, it's, yeah. yes, it's it's good.
0: Well, I i mean, on that note, I have a lot more questions for you okay. about this. but We have to take a really quick break. We'll okay. be right back with more CyberKline. Okay, we're back with Sabra Klein. Um, something I was thinking about over the break, uh, you, again, when you're talking about about health differences between men and women a- and their different health vulnerabilities, I think all the time about how much more blind men are to those differences. Like, I feel like women know, yeah. oh man, they're susceptible to this or the, again, this is a cultural pressure that's placed on women yeah. that's unhealthy. Men tend to deny it in women sometimes and say, Oh, that's not really a problem. And then they tend to not see it in themselves. They oh. tend not, not to notice, or, or it's just not part of our dialogue. And I'm just curious if you have any idea about why that might be, because it perplexes me.
1: Okay. So your anecdotal observation is backed up by solid data. Wow. Then, really? uh, yeah. So, so, so two points that I'll make. So first let's go off what you ended with, you know, men are significantly less likely Um, to take advantage of healthcare in countries where healthcare is available equally to men and women because Mm. unfortunately we get to take that for granted here in the United States, but that's not the case elsewhere. Women yeah. often in, in various countries do not have equal access. So if you have equal access, men are significantly less likely to take advantage of healthcare and, and wow. seek out healthcare. So, you know, going back to why could COVID be more severe? Maybe if you're not paying attention to your symptoms or you're ignoring your symptoms, you may be waiting too long before seeking out care. I see. Um, and, and finally seeking that care, out at a point where the disease has become more serious um, so absolutely you know there are data to speak to that but um, you know one of the, a point or how I interpreted a point that you made um, so please correct me if my interpretation was incorrect um, you know about about women being disregarded um mm-hmm. for for you know if you will some of their aches and pains and and there yeah. are actually data that speak to this um and how many times um unidentifiable pain or symptoms that don't fit nicely into um the repertoire of symptoms for a particular disease and I think where this has been studied the best is in the context of heart disease where um, Women often experience um, not gripping pain, um, but rather this very nondescript um, feeling of indigestion and pressure. Mm, um, but I've it, heard of this. Okay, and, and part of that is because um, the way that um, that the, the 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 calcium buildup in the um, in the blood vessels. Um, it's often more evenly distributed in, um, in blood vessels from, from females as compared with males, males, you tend to get a clumping in one place until eventually it just completely blocks and you have an explosion and that explosion and gripping pain is really characteristic of the quote unquote male heart attack. Um, women, it tends to be more of a, of an even distribution, um, of that, of that, um, of that buildup. And as a result, it's kind of a slow leak. And that slow leak results in this nondescript feeling mm. or reported feeling of indigestion, um, and some pressure and discomfort. And there are data showing that even in studies that have been designed and in, in which case reports are written up and handed to physicians, um, can be the exact same case report. All you're doing is you're changing the name and you're making it a stereotypical female sounding name or stereotypical male sounding name. And it turns out that if in these vignettes or these descriptions of, of having you know, um, heart related symptoms, if it mentions nothing about stress or other aspects of a, of a person's life, physicians, both men and women, are likely to diagnose both with having heart disease. The moment you mention things about life stresses, maybe care of an elderly um, mm-hmm. family member or divorce, you meant just anything little. Just just throw in one line that there's a stressor. The men still get correctly diagnosed as having heart disease, and the women it gets turned into a psychiatric wow. recommendation. Um, And there are absolutely data of, you know, to show that women are significantly more likely to, um, when experiencing heart disease, be sent for a psychiatric evaluation. So I do think some of this, you know, when, you know, it may not be complaining, it may be being in touch with your body and knowing your body and knowing when you're not feeling, you know, right. So I do think we're all of this, you know. I mean, I, I think you know these different these different biases. They're playing out. Co, you know, I think COVID nineteen yeah. is revealing on so many levels um, inequities. Um, yeah. and some of it may be based on gender as you and i have been talking about but you know it is not my expertise at all i'm just get to be surrounded by people who know a lot about health equity in in, in the context of race and ethnicity and i think a lot of what you and i have been talking about fit there too
0: yeah uh, i just go for yeah. it please
1: no no um you know just that that you know, if you don't if either if you don't have access to, to care or you have certain comorbidities, you may be at greater risk. And, and we're seeing, you know, that play out in, in especially in the United States, where we're seeing disproportionately more black people ending up yeah. with severe COVID-19.
0: I just think it's. So I, I find this topic fascinating. Uh, these biases because they play out in different ways for different genders, mm-hmm. right? And so often for for women, it's you know not being taken seriously by other mm-hmm. people, right? For men, often it's not being taken seriously almost by yourself, yes. right? By by yes. by having it yes. having well internalized that thing about you know oh I'm a strong man I feel no pain yeah. I engage in risky behavior mm-hmm. I. Uh, I don't go go to see the doctor and it's those same men who are not taking the biases that are exhibited towards women seriously, you know? Um, And, and I, I really hope that uh, one of the reasons I'm fascinated by the topic is, is I hope that if men start realizing, Oh no, like I've internalized things, there are things about masculinity that have been internalized that I've internalized that are hurting my health, right? Like, Oh, every uh, cigarette ads, alcohol ads have been aimed at me my entire life. That's hurt my health. Then maybe they might start thinking, oh, wait, maybe that thing that my wife or girlfriend or or, you know, women in my life is talking about. Maybe that's not so crazy. Maybe yeah. that maybe that is a real thing. Maybe maybe yeah. they have a version of that, too, because this is <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think this is an equally distributed problem. I think women probably bear the brunt of it. Um, but uh, it's I, I don't know. It, it's just funny how we've we as men often have a special sort of blindness, mm-hmm. even when it's about ourselves.
1: Right. It's true. And, you know, I mean, I, I'll 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 take this to the next level. Please. You know, moving beyond just COVID nineteen, you and I could look across very diverse diseases, some of which are infectious, others of which are not. And I will tell you that, you know, it all contributes to why Lifespan longevity is significantly lower for men than for women across diverse countries, even in low to middle income countries where overall life expectancy is lower than what we are lucky enough to experience here in the United States. You still see this breakdown Mm. where women are significantly, you know, they live significantly longer than their male counterparts You know, so I I do think you know there 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 is something to this concept of of, you know the culture of masculinity, and it's not to say that every aspect of it needs you know that you know we've got to become this you know androgynous community. (laughs) Nobody is saying that, but it's trying to weigh the costs and benefits and figure out where could there be room for improvement? And, and I think being attentive to your own health is, is a good thing.
0: And maybe being willing to put a mask on uh, to protect not just yourself, but others. Yeah. It's a good thing.
1: It is. And, and it's yes. And, and it's not, um, it's not, I don't think it, I think we've got to, we've got to change the perception so that it isn't that it's a sign of, of a, or a threat to one's uh, masculinity, or, I mean, we're seeing, you know, it play out um, as, as being perceived as a threat to personal liberty and mm-hmm. rights. And, and, you know, I think this, you know, it's about, it's about perception and sometimes public health. Whether we talk about wearing a mask or or being vaccinated, um, it's as much about protecting you as an individual, and as it is protecting your neighbors and other people in your communities. Yeah, and you know, I mean, we've we've not been put in this type of situation, at least not in my generation. Um, so I do think there's a tremendous need to try to work together to change some of these perceptions so that we are working together yeah. to get through this. And it, it is going to require buy in from everybody and some, you know, and, and that's easier for some than for others.
0: We may not get it from everybody, but I hope we can get it from as many as people as possible.
1: <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, because that's, you know, that's that is that's public health. Um, you know, I mean, I I mentioned vaccines, you know, we still don't have a vaccine. I think, you know, there's a lot of hope for one by the end of the year, I tend to not, you know, be quite, you know, I think, I think we're probably going to see it become available in 2021. Mm -hmm. Um, and part of why vaccines are going to become so important is, is that concept that we've been hearing about, um, you know, in the media about herd immunity, you know, it's getting enough of us to have some immunity that we, we create um, breaks in the transmission cycle of, of the virus. So that as that virus, as we described, as it takes over your cellular machinery and it buds out of your cells and you sneeze and now the virus particles are going out, if, There's nobody in the vicinity who um, isn't susceptible. So hopefully everybody in that vicinity is, is immune, maybe through vaccination or, you know, exposure, that we provide breaks in the transmission cycle. And that's going to be our only way to really stop this pandemic. Yeah. But
0: mm-hmm. it, it strikes me that masks and social distancing work the same way yes, in that if you have do. enough people doing I, I yes. knew about herd immunity from just knowing about vaccines. And, you know, we've been talking about that for years in terms of the flu Good. virus, et cetera. At least yes. it's in, in my work, it's come up a lot. But the same thing applies to masks, right? That if you've Absolutely. got enough people, if you've got 90 percent of the population wearing masks, that cuts enough of the vectors that it's a lot less likely for it to spread. Even when you do have that one person in the environment who is infected.
1: The virus needs you and I to live. That's the only way it, it, and, and, and it, once you kind of break that transmission cycle and it goes out there and it lands just somewhere in the environment on the sidewalk, but because we were six feet apart and, and it landed in the sidewalk and not on one of us, now it's going to die there. Yeah. And you know, and so like you said, I think mask wearing, combined with the social distancing, today, that's what we have. I mean that's yeah. your that's where we each have some control, you mm-hmm. know um and, and washing hands, but, but that is, and I, I think, you know, those are important messages as a, as another way of, of trying to break these transmission cycles before we have, you know, mass vaccination.
0: A lot of people are curious about how I have friends who are pregnant right now or who, are, who have yes. just given birth. Oh, yeah. um, and I'm very frightened for them, <laughs> or at least I'm concerned uh, when yeah. seeing their Instagram posts, I don't pester them about it, but uh, how does, How do those things interact since we're, since we're on the topic of uh, sex differences and. Absolutely. um, Absolutely.
1: So, so there you have a, a female specific condition, um, you know, getting pregnant and. um, The data that, that we have thus far, and there's some, some pretty decent um, studies that have been published out of China, as well as out of the United Kingdom, really suggesting that it is a very rare event for pregnant women to have severe outcomes from COVID-19. So in this moment, we don't have a lot of evidence to suggest that um, pregnancy is associated with more severe outcome. Those rare cases are in cases where maybe women have, um, they maybe have other underlying conditions, you know. So, which would also make them, you know, at greater, you know, at have having, you know, an at-risk pregnancy, um, preeclampsia, um, you know, gestational diabetes, some of these factors. Um, but, but those are the exceptions, not the rule. So, um, you know, so for any of your, of your pregnant friends or colleagues, um, generally speaking, they should be okay unless they do have other conditions that, that, that mean that, you know, they are at greater risk for severe outcomes associated just with pregnancy. We also do not have ample evidence to suggest that should a woman become infected during pregnancy that she will transmit the virus to her baby. Oh, okay. So I do think that's important as well because, you know, I think for all families, you know, you're worried both about the pregnant woman, but also about the fetus. And, you know, we do not have, um, we don't have much evidence. Um, and again, it's been a, it's been a rare case where there's been some suggestion of a possible infection in utero infection so infection during pregnancy. But, um, For for the most part, we are seeing that um, most pregnant women um, who even might become infected during pregnancy are giving birth to healthy babies.
0: And my understanding is is that uh, for whatever reason, this virus doesn't particularly like like babies are not at particular risk for it for some reason. Is that right? And why is that?
1: So, um, I think we're still, I think the verdict is still out as to whether babies, um, because that's such a, an, a, a susceptible group for, for lots of things. Yeah. Um, but, but if, if, if you'll allow me to expand your point, Please. which I think was your point, just, you know, that, that, that young children, you know, so broadly speaking, young children seem to be spared, um, Yes, I think you're completely correct. I think there are some rare conditions that are, are showing up. So, we are seeing some some unusual neurological um, consequences of infection in, in children, but they they tend to be at least at this stage in this moment of the pandemic rather rare, mm-hmm. um, more the exception than the norm. Um, most children do seem to be spared from severe outcomes from COVID-19. You are completely correct. And, um, you know, people are studying this, everything from the immune system to the expression of those receptors that I was telling you that the virus needs to use to get into our cells. Are there differences in the expression of these receptors? Do kids not have as much so the virus can't get in as easily? I mean, there, there are some pretty cool studies that are being conducted now um, but but it is a very unusual pattern. A much more typical pattern would be that the very young and the very old are at greatest susceptibility to viral infections. Yeah. Um, But that's not what we're seeing. So, you know, and that's I think that's in a way. It is. I you know I actually agree with you. Um, I I think you know I think again you know you try to find you know where where we can maybe feel some relief, and I think I think we can feel relief that by and large children are being spared and by and large pregnant women are being spared and you know that that's that's the future that's the future of our society and yeah. um you know it is it's it's it is we don't want anyone to be dying from this and that's why we're all working 24 7 to try to figure this out and you know it is not to say that um older adults in any of our lives should be suffering like this. And we're trying to figure this out. But I think, you know, the fact that children and pregnant women are spared, um, is, is absolutely a relief,
0: but that's not a given. And it could be that, you know, another, uh, pandemic occurs in the future, which is, uh, kills a lot of children.
1: Well, (laughs) you know, um, you know you and i were around for the 2009 um h1n1 pandemic which was a flu pandemic you know part of why it wasn't anything like this is because you know we all have some level of what we would call pre-existing immunity to influenza viruses because Mm. we've all lived with them our whole lives Mm -hmm. um you know to help protect us but there was a great example where um you know, pregnant women were at significantly greater risk of being hospitalized with severe influenza. and and that was having um, while while pregnant women were not um, transmitting the virus to their babies. Um, They were experiencing some negative outcomes. And that can be everything from, you know, early delivery to having low birth weight babies to um, to even death. So, you know, we have seen that. And I think it is still a relief that at least in this particular pandemic, we're not seeing that. But it's not to say everybody shouldn't be vigilant. I think we all should be. Yeah. You know, so I don't think, you know, just because you're not maybe in an at-risk group doesn't mean you shouldn't be wearing a mask, washing your hands, social distancing. Yeah.
0: Well, I, this has been such a wake-up call. You know, it makes me think of, uh, I lived in New York City uh, when Hurricane Irene hit oh, New wow. York and, yeah. and Vermont and, and you know, yes. New England. And it... And you know there was all this news about it, and then it, New York was mostly spared, and people said, "Oh, that was overhyped." Like, come on, ah, it's not that big a deal. And then the next year was Hurricane Sandy, right? Is the oh very next gosh. year,
1: yeah.
0: Um, and this reminds me of that that we had all those other H one N one and and SARS. And, oh, and yeah. by the way, how how strange is it the way we name these these diseases <laughs> publicly? Because you said that the th- what we call SARS was yes. SARS-CoV-1 right yes um, and then this one that we now call coronavirus is SARS-CoV-2 we might as well just call it SARS-2 right but we've but chosen we don't. This, we- we've chosen this name that's based on the category of the the whole category <laughs> of virus um no very
1: comment.
0: <laughs> no comment on why that it just like it just like takes hold somehow a name like that in the <laughs> press and then we all start calling it that but
1: oh we we have big important people who name our viruses <laughs> <laughs> okay i well, want them still to like me <laughs>
0: <laughs> well I, no i actually don't mean the official name i mean like the the name the no, public cho- I agree. chooses it's you know it's
1: terrible we I, it is terrible We could have a little bit
0: more. I I don't know. We could get a a little more systematic
1: way of of managing some of these names. Well, because
0: it makes me I I didn't realize until now that, oh, wow. What we call SARS and what we call coronavirus are so directly the same type of thing that would be useful in our conversations to sort of like improving our understanding of public health. Um, But so in any case, so this feels like you know, Hurricane Sandy, right. Compared yeah. to Hurricane Irene. All right. We're taking it seriously. But then when, you know, we start, I start hearing that. All right. Like actually this one, we got lucky. It's not killing children yeah. at a high yeah. rate, right? Yes. That, that makes me think, well, hold on a second. This could happen again next year. There's no reason. You yeah. said a hundred year disease, hundred year pandemic. No. No, no reason that can't happen more than it's once true. every century. So true. So do you have that concern that that there's an even even deadlier version around the corner? And do you think that we're m- going to be more awake to that now?
1: I think we will be more awake to that. And I think we'll be more awake to the um, I think the public is more awake to that. And so their demand for um, funding research on diverse viruses, it's it's going to be the money will be there to allow I mean, to allow for this kind of surveillance. Um, for more than, than, than one type of virus. Um, I, I, I sleep at night, so I, I don't live in fear and I, I would never want your listeners, you know, and we work with these viruses every day. Um, and you know, I think we all have to be vigilant and, and use common sense and be smart and think about our neighbors, but, you got to also still, you know, find balance and and live your life and let your children out of the house. And, yeah. you know, yeah.
0: Do you do you uh, just at this very moment in time? And this might be a good moment to end on where, Absolutely. you know, we we uh, had, you know, we had this this really severe lockdown. Everyone took coronavirus or took SARS-CoV-2. Uh, very, very seriously for, yeah. for a period of months. And then it sort of felt like, okay, we've got to reopen. We've been doing this long enough. Numbers are going down. And as we're speaking, our numbers are going up again. Look at the graphs. We're, we're once again spiking. We like didn't even really have a dip. We had what looks like a plateau mm-hmm. and then another spike. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. Just here in LA County, they've closed bars again. It's starting to look like yeah. they opened too soon. Uh, yeah. In the entertainment industry, my industry, people were a month ago they were talking about oh we'll be shooting again soon. Now people are yeah. saying maybe not until 2021. Uh yes. do, what do you think about the public response? Uh how do you how do you grade it? What should we've been doing differently and what should we be doing differently now?
1: We I know that's a big
0: have, question. It's
1: a huge question, you know, and I guess I could answer it in so many different ways, but you know, I think we have fatigue and that fatigue has resulted in I, I, people wanting to get out, wanting to do things, go to the bars, as you said, maybe no longer social distance. Um, and as a result, we are seeing cases climb. You know, I realize that, you know, I, I keep bringing up this 100-year uh, pandemic, you know, the 1918 influenza pandemic, I, I recognize that there was a war going on, World War One, and it was a terrible backdrop for a pandemic, and and did contribute to the spread of the virus and just the incredible levels of death. But in that first wave, you know, you were talking about roughly three to five million um, deaths. That second wave, you were talking about thirty to fifty million. Um, wow. You know, second waves are real, and I think I think that. Um, that fatigue and that that feeling like we can't we can't do these stay-at-home orders we can you know we've got to figure out that smart balance that our economy cannot stay shut there are smart ways to think about how we do these reopenings and I think we're seeing what happens when you rush to do it too quickly and and yeah. you know we we are we're entering or, or we are in that that second wave and i think we do we have fatigue and you know it's it it, but, it this isn't you know much like a sexually transmitted disease i mean you know we could have dealt maybe with hiv if if the if people could abide by okay so just stop having unprotected sex it's it's that yeah. simple And then it exploded into something else because public health is so simple yet so difficult to abide by.
0: Yeah. But, but in, okay. With HIV, like it's not like abstinence is the only answer, right? We condoms and, and all other different types of, of methods that you can take, right. While still having a sex life. Absolutely. Absolutely. And and so with coronavirus or with SARS-CoV-2, I'm going to be precise right now. Okay. uh, You know, the reopening my, my, my understanding is that's, Hey, that's an emergency measure you take to clamp it down while you put the other measures in place. Um, while you put absolutely. contact tracing in place, for instance, I heard a lot of, a lot of talk about contact yeah, tracing as absolutely, being,
1: absolutely.
0: And, and it's been four months later and I'm like, where's the contact tracing? Like, are you like, it like is all the it's other happening. Things.
1: Absolutely. But I think, you know, like what you're seeing, I think in cases where masks can't be worn, like when we're eating and we're drinking yeah. um, social distancing becomes even more important. And so that's where we're running into our problems is, you know, you're in situations where people can't wear masks, So, you know, probably for different, you know, you mentioned about, you know, Hollywood and you can't make your movies <laughs> and have all your actors and actresses with masks on. So if you people can't wear masks, then you've got to have absolute social distancing in place. Yeah. It's where we decide we're going to get rid of masks and we're going to, we're going to reduce social distancing. That's where we're having problems.
0: Well, I, Thank you so much for being here. Any, any other final thoughts to, to no, share with the audience? This has been
1: lovely. I've really enjoyed <laughs> this. So thank you.
0: Thank you. So I learned so much. And, and I really thank you taking the time uh, to talk to us about this. Thank you. Well, thank you again to Dr. Sabra Klein for coming on the show. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. If you did, please leave us a rating or a review wherever you subscribe. It really does help us out. Just hit the back button on your podcast player. Hit that five-star button. We'd appreciate it so much. That is it for us this week on Factually. I want to thank our producers, Dana Wickens and Sam Rodman, our engineers, Ryan Connor and Brett Morris, Andrew WK for our theme song. I'm Adam Conover. You can find me at adamconover.net or at Adam Conover, wherever you get your social media. And until next week, we'll see you next time on Factually.